We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening and blessings. And welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. But tonight, we have... um a different topic. We're going to talk about lynching and revolt. Uh, this past summer, I got to meet Matt Turner's family. There was a movie about Matt Turner. Um, they're waiting for his body, uh, his skull, to be confirmed to be part of his life. Or they don't know. Um, he's at the Smithsonian. And then I noticed on your page, uh, Professor, that you had a marking for a, a place where someone was lynched. And I wanted to get you on to see how you felt about, um, you know, which direction should African-American professors go in when they're discussing black history and which one should we weigh as more valuable. Um, so could you just talk a little bit about this market and background? You know, start wherever you like. Okay, well, one of the things that I would like to um, sort of start off with is more so um, an idea of, of, of a poem. And the poem was written by Langston Hughes, and it was written in 1938, and it's called The Lynching Song. And it goes, pull at that rope, oh, pull it high, let the white folks live and the black boy die. Pull it, boys. With a bloody cry as the black body spins and the white folks die. The white folks die? What do you mean, white folks die? That black boy's still body says, not I. Langston Hughes wrote a lot, um, wrote much about lynching and um, violence segregation, marginalization um, of the black body. Um, in my dissertation, what I discussed was the idea that the black body has been America's battleground in its ideas and its principles. So starting off um, before the colonial period, when race was still fluid. I mean, when we first came to this nation, we did not come as slaves. That would be a process that would grow as our economic interests would grow. And then the black body really becomes centralized um, during the, um, after the colonial period, no, you know, after, I mean, during the colonial period. I mean, excuse me, during the, uh, well, colonial period, but also during the early um, age of America, in the early years. And then that would manifest the black body and subject would be um, manifest in between 1830 and 1865, which was the rise of abolitionists started by blacks. If you want to read a great book by um, Benjamin Quarles called Black Abolitionism, and it's just great. It's called Black Abolitionism. But um, and it talks about the subject of black abolitionism, and it's, it's a beautiful tribute to their energies and efforts. And then in the Civil War, well, you know, you had this, this ideological issue about slavery, 
versus industrial um, economies. And so, but again, the black body is central in this argument. And then eventually the black body would come into the argument really physically with the United States colored troops in 1863 when Abraham Lincoln with the Emancipation Proclamation would allow these groups to be formally organized and recognized by the federal government. But again, the black body becomes the subject of a battleground even after the American Civil War and after the, um, well, um, after the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment, and these amendments are called the Reconstruction Amendments. The 13th Amendment abolishes slavery except for the punishment of crime, and then the 14th Amendment would grant, um, would define citizenship for, for in this case, it was African Americans, but now the 14th Amendment is known as the Equal Rights Amendment because it was the first time that citizenship was defined in the United States, period. And so um, now it's the, called the Equal Rights Amendment because basically it's always talking about a person's citizenship and how no you know, state can abridge that. And then the 15th what? Amendment gave black males the right to vote. So you have the 13th, the 14th, and the 15th Amendment collectively empowering the black body. The reason I'm bringing that up because in a few seconds I'm going to talk about not only the lynching memorial but also another um, place where um, the Equal Justice um, Initiative is also having a museum that's coming up called um, um, Slavery to Mass Incarceration. So that's why I'm building that, I mean, discussing that 14th Amendment. But, yes, under the 14th Amendment, Right, so the, I mean, excuse me, excuse me. Under the Thirteenth Amendment, it's the Thirteenth Amendment. Under the Thirteenth Amendment, if anyone reads it, I've been teaching it now for fifteen years because my dissertation was on lynching. So um, what happens is that the only time you you cannot enslave someone, un, and the word says except for the punishment of crime. So with that, that's a huge exception, and that's why, for example, the rappers in the 80s, 90s, 80s, and I mean 80s and 90s, and even the 2000s, they used to have things. They used to call themselves state property because, in essence, when one is incarcerated, they lose their name and they actually become chattel property. Chattel means movable, movable property. They become property of the state. Right, and so in mm -hmm. essence, you go from chattel property of individuals into the legalized system of slavery. Whereas what the Fourteenth Amendment says is—I mean, excuse me, the Thirteenth Amendment says—is that everyone is free unless they go to jail or unless they get convicted of a crime. And if that's the case, they become wards of the state, property of the state. That's why they pick up numbers. They become they become categorized. That's why even in 2016, you can't write a prisoner without putting their prison number on it because, in essence, their inventory, pretty much like they were under slavery when they were inventory with furniture, clothes, sheets. Okay, so let okay. me just say this one thing about the idea of the okay. how that works. So, again, even in the 14th Amendment, it affirms what's in the 13th Amendment because the 14th Amendment says without due process of law. So the 14th Amendment even allows room for a denial of life, liberty, or property. As long as a person go before the court, and that's why in these drug cases in the 2000s, they were able to seize property right of drug dealers or the like sort yeah. of thing that went into this because for the most part it was still a um, it was still within the process of the law so the 13th amendment says that with the exception of crime the 14th amendment says without due process of law so in essence both of them are affirming one another so in essence you know they work you know, hand in hand, not conspiratorial towards African Americans, but more so of consistency within the law. So, therefore, in the Thirteenth Amendment, you know, you you know, an, an individual can enjoy life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness unless they are convicted for a crime. And in the Fourteenth Amendment, if they're born in the United States, they have every right. No state can abridge it uh, without due process of the law. 
And then the 15th Amendment gives voting rights, I mean, to African-American males. And I have to always say males when I'm talking about this because black women would not get the right to vote um, along with other women in America until the 19th Amendment. So, and that would be in 1920. So basically African-American males were voting um, like um, 50 years more than um, 50 years before African-American women were allowed to vote. And so with that right. said and done, when you sort of have these 13th Amendments there, you still see the black body, though, as the is the prism to sort of look at or the conduit for a lot of these these this um this this pursuit of democracy this this no not about of democracy this pursuit of you know um defining um what empowerment would look like for the average citizen regardless of color when mm-hmm. you talk about lynching did you know I know the answer but I have to ask you mm-hmm. were black people the only ones that were lynched and if we're not the only ones that are lynched are there markers uh, being commemorating the white victims that were lynched. And okay. Universal, no. In a universal suffrage, uh, white people, white, poor white landless white men, when were they able to become citizens and when were they allowed to vote? Okay. So citizenship was not defined in America until the 14th Amendment. It's the first time that it was ever defined. So before then, it wasn't really a conversation. I mean, it was like, you know, it wasn't a conversation per se. Remember, African Americans legally had to go from chattel property, something that was an object, to now having Uh a human element. So before then, between, you know, the time um, where, you know, you had the ratification of the Constitution um, and Uh then you have the um, 1830s, when um well eighteen twenty, twenty eighteen twenty four, eighteen twenty eight, where Andrew Jackson is now co- rising and coming to power. Uh-huh. Most white males get the right to vote in the eighteen twenties and eighteen thirties. And so again, cause okay. the, so if you look at American history, okay. really white men d- you know, had the right to vote on I mean the average white male had the right to vote you know, really a short period of time uh, from African when from African American males got the right to vote, roughly within a forty-year period. Mm-hmm. Okay, so when we talk about the Reconstruction period, because let's be clear mm-hmm. that these amendments that you're talking about, thirteen, fourteen, and fifteen, were done during Reconstruction when black people were in office, right? Um, but I just want to say that the the biggest piece here, though, in Reconstruction and how it connects to um, about the lynching memorials that you're talking about. Now, W. B. Du Bois mm-hmm. in a wonderful book called Black Reconstruction, which to every major, um, well, any credible um, book on Reconstruction mentions W. B. Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. In essence, it's a book called Nation Under Our Feet, and I'm thinking of Stephen Hahn. Um, what happens mm-hmm. is that he basically gives the, oh, this is W.B. Du Bois's work, really. I mean, I'm just really, you know, um, expanding on Du Bois's wonderful essay, I mean, excuse me, wonderful book mm-hmm. on black reconstruction. It was, I mean, it's very comprehensive. And so what Du Bois says is that between 18, you know, um, between the 1865 and 1877, the blacks are being massacred, I mean, in huge numbers. And so immediately after when the black body, um, the black body that was the slave, Right, that was actually one of the causes of the American Civil War, and then you had the black body that's fighting against slavery, which is well, well, the United okay, States colored well, troops. Mm-hmm. Okay, what I'm trying to to bring bring home, drive home, is that the white people, especially poor white men like Andrew Jackson, and you know, um, well, Jackson wasn't too poor because he had slaves, but uh, okay. you can continue. Mm-hmm. Well, he yeah. was a struggling white male, but he wasn't. I mean, he still okay. owned slaves. I mean, and that and and, and he, that means that he was a part of only twenty five percent of the American South owned slaves. A white people owned slaves, and so he was still okay, well, a part I, of that slave owning class. I, mm-hmm. I haven't studied him, so you know, so yeah. I, I agree with you until I've learned something different. But the point I'm trying to drive home is that, as usual, when it comes to black people's struggles, political struggles. It's usually us who use who use the power of the pen, 
right? Not the pistol. To free and make great strides that everybody else seems to benefit from. Well, yes, I mean, I would. When it comes to our narrative, we exclude that they, they, you know, when you said that the uh, most white women weren't able to vote until the black women were able to vote, right? Yeah, they I mean, were they, yeah. As a whole person, even though they had no citizenship. Well, and yes, yet, but we thought that we had three, that we were three fifths of a person when that was really only um, a benefit to us to be considered three-fifths a person instead of a whole when we couldn't vote and we weren't considered citizens, where the Southerners got credit for a whole person as far as white women and poor white men was lynched. So when yeah, we, but you know, we talk about these lynchings, white people were lynched as well as black people were. But for some reason, we want to take on the story of the lion and tell our history from their perspective and not really shed light on giving the whole big picture of who was lynched, who was politically disenfranchised as well, and how they benefited from our struggles during the Reconstruction period. So you're looking at a period, that Reconstruction period, um, that is, um, you know, really a lot of biracial efforts to, you know, in essence, right the, what didn't happen at the Constitutional Convention, what they're trying to do during the Reconstruction era, at least, at, um, at, less, at least for the first, um, let's just say, well, between 65 and, you know, Reconstruction, by the way, is 1865 to 1877, for your um, listeners who may not know. Mm-hmm. And so between the 65, 1865 and 1877, most definitely within the five, first five or six years of Reconstruction, because Reconstruction is 12 years, for the first half you have a lot, you have you know people working biracially i mean because of it was a you know what ends reconstruction is an election like pretty much like we have and it's called the compromise what? we have today the compromise of 1876 what ended up happening was that in an election um the popular vote went one way the electoral vote went another way so what happens is they decided that okay how are we going to settle this well if we, if you remove the federal troops from the, the remainder of the federal troops from the American oh. South, you know, then it's, it's called, you have redeemed, uh, it was called a period called, the, if you want to look it up, it's called a redemption oh, yeah. period in American history, redemption. Oh. And redemption is when the su- white Southerners regain control of their, the recall of Southern states. So, so wow. what happens is that, um, so with that, there was a redemption of the Southern states. Now, and the reason that I want to share that is because, again, what Stevenson, um, Brian Stevenson and his crew are doing down there in Montgomery with the lynching is because after 1877, now that the southern states have been redeemed and they're back and the, and the power is now in the hands of white southerners, um, white southerners who lost the war militarily start to win the war socially. Because between 1877 and then within 20 years later, when they well, roughly 20 years later, when there is a decision called um, um, Plessy versus Ferguson in 1896, mm-hmm. what happens is that segregation will become the law of the land. But then, what helps segregation becomes the law. Of the, well, what helps to reinforce segregation is the violence that's per- perpetuated against the black body and the allies of the black body. And so, again, so you have in American history, unquestionably, okay, right. I mean, to, to I have to put this in, because the, the, one of the things that it also did was that it was a decision in 1857 called the Dred Scott decision. Well, the only people who weren't following the Constitution, and, you, and we're saying how history is repeating itself, were people like Trump during that era. Okay, they, well, they, they were state, there were states in rebellion. You asked about the 13th, 14th Amendment, and you said that they right. write, they were sort of finishing what the Constitutional Convention, well, I said no, that no, the, I they were just, finishing what the start. Constitutional Convention was doing. I mean, you're right to make that assertion, but I had to put in there was something that happened, though, that was necessary for the 14th Amendment. And the way that I okay. teach it, which is valid, is 
there was a man by the name of Dred Scott who in 1857 sued for his freedom. But what happens mm-hmm. is a man by the name who was Roger Taney, he was over the Supreme Court, he basically, which was one of the most horrible decisions made in the Supreme Court's history, one of the most horrible in the Supreme Court history, is when he said that no black man had a right that a white man was bound to respect. No black man, meaning free or slave, male or female, had a right that a white man was bound to respect. Basically, we had no right to sue. Is that what he was trying to say? Yeah, we have no rights for anything because we're really not citizens. Right. And so, therefore, this is how you have to get into that decision. So in 1857, when that decision was made, it took a constitutional amendment because the Supreme Court, which interprets the law for the land, which interprets the Constitution, right? That's why Supreme Court, you know, um, Supreme Court justices are so important. Well, we have to just think that they're only decisions. They're not law. No, no, it is. Their, Their decisions are law. Their interpretation of the Constitution is the law of the land. The Supreme Court determines the interpretation of a law and how the federal government will then proceed on any type of course of actions. So when the Taney's Court in 1857 basically makes this decision, the only thing that's going to get rid of it basically is null and void that decision, if you will, is a constitutional amendment, and that's when we get the 14th Amendment, which actually defines citizenship rights. So basically every American really can owe, even though Dred Scott was denied his freedom, every American every American, and today, every American today can actually owe something to Dred Scott because, in essence, it was that decision that helped to, during the period of Reconstruction, to serve as the backdrop to the creation of the 14th Amendment. But the main thing I want you to sort of take away is not necessarily, you know, I mean, we live in a country of laws, and we are governed, we are, our, we are a republic. And I don't, I mean, again, as the Electoral College actually shows, you know, this conversation about that, they're going to be voting tomorrow. It basically shows you how much a republic we are and not a democracy. Hillary Clinton got the popular vote, but the Electoral College, which is in the Constitution, right, um, it, the, the Constitution safeguards the elite. Well, I'm sorry. I, I don't think it's, I don't think it's um, protecting the elite because when we look at the federal papers and these these um, conscious electors, as we call them, they, they deem themselves to be called um, the Hamilton electors. Back from him, he was not an well, you have to really, it, I mean, let's not get caught up and, too much in all the, the Hamilton plays. I mean, sometimes we people reconstruct history. Like right now we have on Fox News, they actually congratulate, um, they talk about Martin Luther King, and they have T-shirts that says that the Republicans are the party of Lincoln and the party of King. I mean, some of that is just people reconstructing history. They're recreate constructing right. narrative. And, uh, I invite everyone and, to listen to Beyond the Mountaintop when King talks about how he was under threat. So this this idea of, you know, how history works about, but no, the Federalist Papers, the very papers that you're talking about, the Federalists were people who wanted a federal system, who wanted a constitution, and one of the head Federalists was a man by the name of James Madison. His most famous out of the Federalist Papers, it's the, the most fam- one of the most famous is Federalist 10. It's only four pages. I encourage you to read it. And what happens is, in I have, essence... I have the, I have the, I have no, I mean, when I say I you're talking about say, your viewers, yeah, I mean, your listeners. Okay, mm-hmm. I, I'm, okay. Um, I'm from Patterson, New Jersey, second generation, and Patterson, New Jersey is the um, city that Hamilton um, uh, used, or, you know, he set to use as the model industrial city so to help abolish slavery by moving towards Sustainable energy at the great with the use of the Great Falls and hydro and hydroelectricity. Um, this was something that was extremely high tech. Tesla, if you're familiar with the car, is um, he experimented with hydroelectricity, and it was in direct opposition to um, slavery. And in fact, he promoted silk being used as opposed to cotton. 
and Patterson's name is now, nickname is Silk City. So coming out of Patterson and not learning these facts um, is a deliberate um, way of miseducating us about our history and the importance of who Hamilton is. And it is not, it, it is not a coincidence that they tried to remove him from the bill. And, um, and it's also, historians also know that it was important to shift the uh, focus off of Hamilton and to remove Andrew Jackson and replace him with Harriet Tubman. So when we talk about what, Ham, what Hamilton represents, um, he's, not, he's nowhere near getting the, the, um, the respect that he deserves as far as being an abolitionist. There is a new wave to teach black people, especially Pan-Africans, that Hamilton was a white man, he, he owned slaves, that his father-in-law owned slaves, and he bought slaves for his father-in-law. There's a whole lot of nonsense. And I'm so glad that as a child I became interested, and I have a whole collection on Hamilton. I've been to um, several of his commemorations. My daughter has, my young people in my family. So when I talk about Hamilton, I'm, I'm, it's a great thing for me that the electors are calling themselves Hamilton electors. But we're going to talk about that in a few, but I want you to continue with um, the the black bodies and the lynchings. Yes, with that formalization, one way to formalize it was through violence, and that violence Mm -hmm. manifests in lynchings. And so Mm -hmm. lynchings, um, and and a lynching as um, easily defined is when a person is um, either they are denied due process of the law, or when they did have the um, the due process of law, it was biased. And so, um, so here is a so between 1877 and 1896, what you have is the rise of segregation, but it's segregation reinforced through violence, and that violence would come into the massacre of African American communities and and bodies. For and so in these these um these massacres, let me just tell you how Chicago Tribune most lynching studies starts in 1882 because the Chicago Tribune was getting so many reports and telegrams of lynching, they basically said, you know, let us start keeping a record of this next year. And so what happens is, and that's what they said in 1881, and so in 1882 they just start counting. So that's why most lynching accounts or most lynching numbers start in 1882. Now, what the Equal Justice Amendment did was that, I mean, the Equal Justice Initiative out of Montgomery, headed by Brian Stevenson, what it did was they basically did a report, and it was about lynching. And they said roughly 4,000 blacks were lynched between 1877 and 1950. And so what they have now is a memorial, and that memorial is of um and the way that it's sort of put on the topography of uh, put on the land is that in these lynchings happened of the 4000 blacks who were lynched and again you asked earlier about well why don't we tell the comprehensive story of why all people were lynched because for the most part blacks were lynched because of racial bias and because of you know whatever the perceptions were so they represent the lynching of black people really, um, and again, you had various ethnicities who were targeted. I mean, you had a very famous um, lynching case, a Jew who was um, lynched and named Leo Frank in, um, in, in Atlanta. But for the most mm-hmm. part, you know, rep- blacks represented, that black body represented the antithesis of the the formation of what whiteness is. So what happens is that night right now what Brian Stevenson and them are trying to do, and I think it's very admirable, and they're opening up two museums in 2017, uh-uh. is that they're looking at the black victims of lynching. And, again, let me explain. I don't know necessarily, you know, a lot of people think that they know the story of lynchings and how lynchings work. But let me just give you a lynching from 1904, Vicksburg, Mississippi, the lynching of Luther Hubbard and his wife. What happens is that Luther Hubbard and this man, they get into it, a landowner. The landowner want to pay him in, like, scripts, meaning that he, he has to go, he works for the man, he pays him, get paid in scripts, and has to go to the man's store, his relative's store. 
So in essence, the money stays in the family. Luther Hubbard wants cash so he can able to be more mobile with he and his wife, right? With him and his wife, sorry. And so what yeah. happens is that um, he goes and he and the white man, after months, he and the white man end up getting into a fight. He gets the best of the white man. He kills the white man. It found out that he um, he killed, I mean, that you know, he realized that he has to go on the run. He goes and he gets his wife. They go on the run. So this posse, in the meantime, they forming, and when this posse forms, before they get to Luper Hubbard and his wife, they basically murdered um, six black people. Okay, so random. It doesn't matter who they are. That's what I was saying about. That's why I wanted to con- start the conversation about the black body, what it represents. It's not ne- their objects, just like they were under slavery, just like they were, you know, um, you know, like sheep, cattle, whatever, a piece of furniture. And so what happens is they get to Luther Hubbard and his wife. They finally find them. They put them in a, um, they put them in um, the uh, the jail, and then they announce it in the paper. They have excursions coming from Alabama and from Memphis, Tennessee. They this is and so they get down. People are, you know, they literally have train excursions and people are coming down. The total that thought came to this lynch because they announced it in the papers and through telegrams. 5,000 people came. They put Luther Hubbard and his wife in. Um, they tied him to a tree, and they said, slow roast, slow roast. We want a slow roast because they had, they had come from, some of them have come from distances. Well, so they basically Tanya, put a price. I don't want to hear any more, I can't hear any more of this because what I think we're doing is we're teaching a new set of racist um, people who probably who aren't even born in this country a part of a history that they can repeat. And I think No, I think that what Brian Stevenson doing is trying to show with these markers and what he's trying to do is a you have to have a just because you it's it's like a conversation. I mean, like we said, we can't even talk about slavery. It's a I mean, it is a lesson. It, it is a lesson. It is a reminder if you, if these markers don't have um if they don't show the penalty if they, if there's no, uh, but there weren't any course. penalties. There were, but there weren't there any were, penalties for most of them. It, Do you know that 97, okay. I mean 99, and the Senate apology for lynching that happened in 20. If you go and you look on, okay. you know, just look it up, Senate right, apology for lynching. It. You'll see 2015 that 99 percent of the cases went free. I mean, so 99 yes. people percent of people who lynched, so, they so didn't what, suffer what any consequences. What message are you sending to those people who live in these communities where these markers are, and these markers are in predominantly white neighborhoods? I went to one of them. I went to a marker ceremony. I didn't know that I that I was going to be attending one. I was felt a lot. I felt really really proud because the person who was lynched was a black entrepreneur, and so his story was very inspirational. So on one side of the marker. They talked about the reasons why he was lynched, which, which you said most of the cases is that they're very jealous of the of the of, of the black people. And Ida B. Wells, she says that in in one of her speeches that like 90% of the black people that were, that were murdered were business people, you know, uh, entrepreneurs and enterprising people. And these are the people that they targeted. Um, mainstream media and textbooks they normally don't. Um, show black people that are being lynched as successful people and entrepreneurs and they don't show the reason behind it, but they just show it as a sport. So my point is when I went to Abbeville, South Carolina, to see the mark of Anthony Crawford, um, it was in the middle of a, a redneck, looked like a redneck town to me, where hardly any blacks would even go visit today. Yet um, I, I look at it as, as a memento of something of like a serial killer would keep a memento of his of of his um deadly dashly deed and they hold on to that's what serial killers um do. And when you have these when we are giving them a memento as a as a victim, I can't imagine giving um Dahmer and his his fans a piece of history to keep him um in the news to let his followers see this is what they did. They roast them. This is what they said. And, you know, you're just really teaching them. No, that's not true. And they can repeat it. I mean, I disagree. I mean, if you show them a Nat Turner marker right next to it, or you show 
black people fighting back next to these markers and show that we got Billy Bob too, and Billy Bob's family's house got burned up and it was and there, and show them as victims as well, then I don't have a problem with the marker. But for it to be lopsided and to show us as being victimized and that we, we weren't fighting back or we had no part of ending this abolition, I mean this um lynching, if you're gonna but put up these markers you need to have you need to have Ida B. Wells next to him. You need to have Paul Robeson but next you, to him. You need to you need to have everybody that fought against the lynchings. You have to give them their their uh, just too. You just can't say to well, to the world that these white people got over with killing us like this. Okay, well, I guess I I have a different no I I have a totally different perspective. Again, that's why if you see it through the black body, what happens is that number one, I don't know if you're familiar even why the National Association for the Advancement of Color People got started was because they were anti-lynching. Because basically, if you look at what these memorials are trying to do, and let me just say, there are, I'm just going to say this, there were 4,000 black victims between 1877 and 1850, that's 73 years um, of lynching. You have it, uh, what Brian Stevenson and them are doing is they took six acres in Montgomery. It took roughly about um, $20 million to try to uh, work on these museums and the like sort. And so, therefore, it's like, you know, when, you, when, you, when everybody in the town have heard of it or know of it, and then when a, when a marker goes up, it, it affirms that that memory that took place is not something that was, you know, um, that was something that was imaginary, not something that somebody is making so up for a, memory, a victimization a memory, okay. tale. Okay, so you want this memory to be in a predominantly white town. To Doesn't matter this. where it is. Is it, going to, is it going to make them feel guilty? You know, what it's not about making people. It's what, not a ma- about 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 making people feel think? guilty. I mean, what what it, do you you know? If I was if I was on a family reunion bus ride, I'm not going to no deep south into no predominantly white neighborhood that was known to lynch black people. I don't want to see a marker. That's the last place I'm going to take my well, get Well, can I, well guess what? If you're on a southern bus and you're going to... If you could put the marker, at, like in Abbeville, um, the gentleman, Mr. Crawford, started a church, established a church, and he, they have a black community. Then put that marker in his community where black people would be proud to come and, and visit and acknowledge him. But don't oh, see the the one the one the one perspective that you're making is that, for example, that these areas are gonna stay static. I mean, Harlem right now in 2016 is being gentrifying like crazy. So guess what? You put a well, marker, I, all black I, well, markers there, or let's listen, take Philadelphia listen, South listen, Street. Listen, 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 listen. But Harlem and I wrote an award-winning short play about Harlem and gentrification, calling Harlem whitewash. You gotta see it and YouTube it. Um, Hall and White Wash by Leslie Gibbs. So I'm doing my part when it comes to gentrification, and I don't think we should take it lightly to say um, if people are are um, encroaching on us that that's just nor- uh, a normal, you know, normal business. I'm not saying that it's, that's but I'm saying you act, side. but you act as if these areas are static. Right now, if you go to let's say downtown, I mean South Street, Philadelphia, and you look at all around Mother Bethel. AME Church that was started. That whole area was black, but now when you look at the demographics, it's not. And so when you look at well, South Philly at once, well, I mean, that, so what I'm just trying to say is that, truth. well, so well, what well, I'm saying is that you're saying is that these markers, these markers go where towns are there, where people are said, okay, let's put these pieces there, and it starts a conversation. I don't care if it's, but, well, I don't necessarily, I'm not concerned if, if it's black or white. I don't, I don't care if it's in a, because right now what can be a black community in 2017 can be, um, hopefully we can move away from, you know, that form of segregation where when you look at it, the, the, okay. the, the demographic is so heavily one population because that's the way up, that's segregation. But hopefully okay. as we and move forward, okay. you know, we move forward, then you will have these towns that are more integrated. Let, let me say this, doctor. Mother Bethel, I attended the 200th anniversary and the statue that they put up very, very proudly. And I'm pretty sure there's a lot of black-on-black crime over there. There were some lynchings and so forth in that area before it became gentrified. But I'm so happy to see there was a major turnout 
news um, outlets were there to see the marker that the black people put up with their own money um, of the founder of the church, um, Richard Allen. And to say that it's being gentrified, this is true, and I'm also working on a play about the gentrification and that burial ground that the church is not supporting because the leaders of the church, and I don't want to be wrong, I'm, I may be wrong, but from the story, I've been following the story about the burial ground at um, in that gentrified area, Mother Buckle's burial ground. And it's only being encroached upon and gentrified because we have a bunch of Huh, race traders, black history traders, who do not value our history, not the victories of our history, but they will lean more towards the victimization of our history. So it's See. more profitable today to conjure up and to celebrate being a victim than being a victor. And, and now, I see, where you I see being a victim... It. Like my piece is that when I'm looking at this one, this memorial that is going up in Montgomery, and by the Equal Justice Initiative, um, and they have the names of the engraved the victims on the um, the columns. Why you see that as victimization? I see that as survivor. I mean, because again, like I said, it's almost going. I think that what happens here right now, what's happening here, and this is great for the listeners. Because, I mean, mm-hmm. I, I am more so, I mean, we're so, more so on the lines of me growing, I grew up in the South, right? So to tell me, a Southerner who grew up mm-hmm. in a post-integrate, I mean, post, um, post-segregation, right? I grew up mm-hmm. after, I mean, well after, um, well, not, you know, five or six years after segregation was officially, you know, mm-hmm. squashed in the South. And so now... But to 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 for for my for my grandmothers, for the domestics mm-hmm. that cleaned up, that watched those areas, that they have things mm-hmm. like lynching trees and lynching bridges, right? Because those things exist in our communities in the South, and we're told about them. And so now, but they're mm-hmm. not taught. When you go to the the county libraries, or when you go in, you mm-hmm. see the stories of the um, the, the what happens in the South. What you normally get is more of what you like, and you like to have the mm-hmm. history where, you know, black history doesn't start, you go from slavery to civil rights. And so all that stuff mm-hmm. in between, it didn't happen. Chain gangs didn't happen. The raping of people, um, <clears throat> the raping of women did not happen. What I'm saying the is raping that we of the are men, not none of that stuff happened. We're not mentioning how any of it was abolished and how it was prohibited. And you, we're not talking well, about. Well, most the of it was not. Like I'm from the south. I'm just but, trying to tell you, we're not talking about your grandmother and the great people in your family who endured it and fought back in any way, or in 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 a small way or in a big way. We act as though they didn't participate in any of these. But we, um, they did because that's what it. they did, and that's but what Brian no Stevenson is showing. No, he did. He's showing that. That guess what. They refuse to let the stories die. That's that the be- that's the beauty message. of these memorials to me is that no, they no, refuse. No. Oh yes, I'm going to tell you no, now. I'm oh yes, this is a subliminal uh. message to to tell the children. The black children will see that you need to be fearful because nobody ever had to pay. This is what's going on right now with these black unarmed men. Or no, it's never kill. again. No, it's or the story of never again. It's like, okay, guess what? The reason that your communities, when you have places like, you know, Tunica, I mean, uh, I'm sorry, like you have Tunica, Mississippi. Say that? Well, how does your marker say never again? Well, okay, I mean, because you basically now telling the story of how somebody was lynched. Right and how they were denied justice, just like the story of Emmett Till. Hold on, so hold on. Like this, you asked me. I'm telling you. I'm giving you the answer. So, like the story Mm -hmm. of Emmett Till. Right? Why? Why should we know the story of Emmett Till? Because in the end, guess what? Nobody paid for his murder. So let me flip the question back to you. Why is Emmett Till even important? Because in essence, you know what? In in fact, in 20 years, we should not even talk about Trayvon Martin. Because for the most part, guess what? Justice wasn't done. So let's not talk about it. Well, I mean, that's what you're saying, is that justice, if justice, justice didn't prevail, done. not that, that mm-hmm. Trayvon Martin's and Emmett Till's murder helped to mobilize black people 
across the nation, and just like Trayvon Martin's murder did. And so, and so right. what I'm saying, and in some of these lynching, in these lynching cases, why do you think those black people, those people that we, they're, they're nameless, they're sharecroppers, like my people were. Okay, guess what? But they supported the NAACP. They, guess what? When people weren't looking around and the NAACP was conducting their investigation, the they that? met them in the, the, yeah, and the markers, and the, the markers the tell the story, though. The, the markers tell the investigation that's not in the formal reports. That some of those, uh, some of those markers, they basically, because the formal report said that lynchings happen at the parties of hands unknown. That 99% of lynchings basically was said that uh, they came. The answer, the general answer was that's why they got a book call. That happened at the, uh, uh, the, the at the parties well, of uh, at the hands of parties unknown. You answered the question that you asked. Um, you answered it for me, and you just said it so elo- eloquently, which is the markers should include everything you just said that the end but they do your family members gave to the NAACP all that's all I'm saying if you're going to have a marker you have to show you should you should show that you should connect the dots to say listen in order for us to say never again this is how it was ended this is how no, we or you can, or somebody uh, looking at Bloody Sunday. I mean, what I say, I'm just, I guess I can't, I, the reason I just am not, I mean, because some of these stories, like I look at the markers and they have a lot of, I mean, a lot of words on it. I'm just going to tell you, I mean, mm-hmm. it's in the story, these are the stories they have like, you know, to me, but for the most part, it's like, the the, the the piece is to start a conversation. When I was growing up, lesson I guess you just You're don't understand because I, I am Southern. No, 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 no. I but see, I wasn't an educator always. I grew up, my grandmother was a sharecropper. My people were sharecroppers. When I remember going down there and getting a tag from the county office, and see, this is mm-hmm. what you can't understand. And I know what Brian Stevenson has done. I'm a, I grew up Southern. Okay, that's the big piece. I'm not speaking in abstract. When I go down there, when I got my little brown hand and another brown hand that's older, and we're going to the courthouse, and you're looking at and saying, Mama or Daddy or Granddad or Uncle, whomever, who is that? Because they're so larger than life. The Confederates, mm-hmm. so the, the Confederates, mm-hmm. the Confederates are so larger than life. And so then you look at that, and you're like, Oh my goodness. And so, and then you find out when you know, but people like, oh, that was just some people. Guess what? I think that uh, what a lynching marker. No, and this is what I believe. What happens is, okay, when when you when you show, when you when you tell me why my people, when you tell me why we grew, why the tracks in some areas in the South is still like this, where one side of the area is you know well paid and the other side is not. It helped to give a context. It's not necessarily when you're silenced on the entire history, when the only thing you see is one big imposing figure, and that's the only thing you see. And the other stuff is all done in hush or in whispers. Then it it, it skews the story. And so now it actually reinforces a stereotype that certain that are well, actually, it's part of reality. But for the most part, is that it, it reinforces. My God, look at the powerful these people are. And so now you don't get a David and Goliath story. And so when you basically say, okay, so the poverty or the conditions that we have, you have to put it in context because at least now this marker explains how we were mistreated. This marker explains how justice was denied. This marker explains a whole history, yes. Mm -hmm. We don't need to be reminded of those things that we were mistreated. We need to be taught how to prevent Repeating, but that you are history. teaching people. Well, why do people? Well, why are right now? Why are we having Christmas? I mean, why do you have Christmas okay. and Easter? Because basically, one of them is a story of birth. Then the, the whole crucifixion story. Why tell it? Why tell the crucifixion well, story? Okay. I mean, what I'm saying well, well, is that. Well, I mean, because I mean, because what? You can let me answer. Just let me answer. Okay. I, and I just told you I went to see Nativity, and this story has been on my mind prior to going to see it in, in my. You know, I'm trying to get ready to see this. And so I did a little research in the Bible before I went to see it. The story of the crucifixion, if it's told from that perspective that we nailed your guy to the cross, 
and that was the end of it. And I'm going to use your phrase, it's just to start a conversation, right? But without telling the ending that he rose again and that we have Easter to celebrate, that he defeated death, that he defeated it. So having a story of crucifixion without saying that he defeated death, that he rose again and that we're here today thousands of years later in different parts of the world in different languages talking about how he rose again and he has arisen in our conversation, in our spirit. So I would never have a conversation about Jesus being put on the cross without telling the end that he rose again and we're here talking about him. But the fact that the... That he rose. But so if, but the, sensations, if I was just to put markers of a cross with Jesus nailed to the cross and never tell the story that he is alive. Guess he what? But most people throughout the South, throughout America, go to the Midwest, they got crosses hanging up and they don't have a story there. It's again to start a conversation. And guess what? The fact that it's another Southerner by the name of Alice Walker, wrote a book, and a book that she wrote was called um, The Color Purple. And one of the biggest lines of the major character is that I'm here. And so the, I'm here. I am here. The fact that I just told you about being a brown body down south and seeing the imposing Confederate symbol and the fact that a marker shows that, I mean, you said, well, I mean, I, you know, I said, hey, put it up. So, hey, look, you know, you can get a nuance. You can come to understanding. The fact that I'm here, my people are still here in this okay, county. Okay, let me give you a that is, No, no, that is the reserve. That is the story. That is the story, though. The fact that that happened in this county. Maybe not where you were at, you know, that maybe didn't have blacks around or whatever, but it happened in this county, and it happened in this way, and these people are still living in that county. You know, they're still, you have, you now they can see teachers, they can see funeral home directors, they can see barbershop older, they can see all okay, that. The right, fact that they are still there, that now. shows, that's the redemption story. I mean, but that's the redemption. I mean, you at, you just said to your own story, hey, look, you know, if we didn't know, the reality is you go throughout America Sometimes you do only see a cross. Then the conversation is, where's the well, conversation? The, the and then once you do is you get symbolic. into the nuances. Okay, let, let and so the say, marker. Let, let me say this, doctor. Um, um, to say I'm here, and I'm just taking notes because you are your brain is so fast and I have to take notes. Um, to say I am here, right? Mm-hmm. If I say I am here, mm-hmm. and, and let's say with Jesus and the Jewish people, right? For me to put a cross of Jesus being nailed to the cross in a Jewish community that has no respect for Jesus would be would be ludicrous for me to invest as a Christian to say I'm going to put the marker in a Jewish community. Where I mean, but the, yeah. I put it in a a Christian community and say here we are, we are all here, and we all call ourselves Christians. Black, white communities are not calling themselves African American historians, African American anything, you know. So that's one point. And the Coptic, I just interviewed a Coptic um, Christian. Um, Hold on, before you go there, I have to say before you go there, you're preaching symbols. That you're encouraging you know, people, but you're encouraging. What you're saying is this, right? Mm-hmm. Preach to the choir. And as, mm-hmm. most people tell you that, I mean, you you just saying, in essence, Richard, theme, your thesis was, I mean, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I'm going to say I don't, I, I, right. from I all the, right. my brothers and Jewish, right. the brother, the brothers, the Jewish brothers and sisters that I know, they don't, they don't necessarily dislike Christ. They just don't see him like Christians see but, Christ. But okay, but I, I'm if, going to, but if, I'm, but I'm, but I'm, but what if, you're saying you know. is preach to the choir only. And so therefore, hey, look, don't, don't teach African-American history to white kids because they they're not going to be able to appreciate it so guess what let's just teach only african-americans african-american history hey let's only teach hispanic kids um, latino history no no but you just said that you just said it though no no you just said it you did just say that you said put the marker in their community no, no, but that's you just right. said it. You I said, think. why put the, so why put it, so my piece is that, it, I mean, that's where you really want to put it. Because in essence, guess what? If a marker is there and people are walking by doing, you know, maining, I mean, I mean, kids oh, in strollers, with kids I'm, riding bikes or whatever, you're now teaching an, a community about 
it, what happened in their community. Now, at this moment, when you're again, what you're if you're not careful, I just want us to pause just two seconds. Listen to what you're saying. Uh-huh. Is that you're saying uh-huh. that hey, look, you can just you know why even go over there and have that conversation with those people. Go over there and put it where where all the majority of the blacks live. They and they're going to have a conversation. People? I mean, guess what? The way that I understand how the they're markers work people. is that the way that I the way that I understand how the markers work is that the um the the um well they actually have they have more like they're more like gravestones as opposed to like the markers. But average but when markers are normally planted anywhere, it's normally some level of town fundraising or some level of town support because they have to bring people out to decide where they're going to have it. They have to agree to where they're going to have it and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I want to go back to this idea about, because you're talking about spatial. It's like a, it's actually called spatial history. Well, so what happens mm-hmm. is that, you know, like where something belongs. Right. I mean, like, I mean, where does, you know, where does something belong? And it was a conversation that um, this um, conversation that we're having um, um, actually was um, took place in Selma. Just it's actually I think the, the battle is still ongoing in Selma about where to put a um, Confederate Nathan Bedford Forest. And, and 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 so you had the residents of Selma saying, "Hey, look, he doesn't belong there." You had um, the whites saying, "I mean, the, um, some white conservatives saying, yes, he does.' I mean, so it, it, I mean, it, you know, the the battle waged. And so what I'm saying with these markers, I mean, Brian Stevenson to basically be this courageous, knowing Southern attitudes. Mm-hmm. I mean, because he's already had faced like you know people like some level of hesitation. And again, you don't know okay. the silence. You don't know how silent it is when you're in an area where, where you know, like, I mean, you're... Okay, let me just say this. I understand Mm -hmm. the silence coming from the Nat Turner family that I've met and and been in conversation. I understand that their their silence is very painful, um, that you have white people collecting and it has um, taken uh, possession of all of Nat Turner's a memorabilia, all of his artifacts, and they are just burying them. That I understand that they, they, and from I'm a gist, and um, part of the gist legacy is that we have markers too in communities where um, that were designated for the, the blacks, the blacks gist family members who were free. And those markers, because it is a symbol of victory, are um, defaced, are stolen. And they're raised by us. And even though it, it used to be a black community, some and was, there were six, we have a hard time maintaining them. They literally dump garbage on our property. So um, there's so many stories of victory that are longing for this type of recognition and this type of support, financial support. And it's a beautiful story of, of blacks and whites and people from all races getting together to make sure these people were freed and that they had a safe place to live. And this is what we need, especially during this time when we may have Trump as the president. We don't need to, and there's some horrific things that happened in the Gist family and on the Gist settlement in Ohio, and there's some horrific stories that happened um, on the plantation in Virginia where they came from. And I just drove, happened to drive by there the same time I met the Nat Turner people. Just by coincidence, it was his anniversary and we happened to drive by, and I recognize all the names of the plantations in Virginia. And the point is, as a historian, a self-subscribed um, a historian and genealogist, and when I think of organizing a family reunion and what I want to teach the young people in my, my family, if I start off with talking about lynchings, first of all, they're never going to want to come back to another family reunion. Um, secondly, um, it's, a, it's going to be a sad occasion. But if we talk about how we overcame. It's all according to how you then, put it in context. And you have to, you have to, and, and, and that's all I'm saying about these markers. You know, I, I mean, but you you had like but, um, these things the, are not happening in isolation. I mean, Trayvon well, Martin didn't happen in isolation. Let me, just say, let me just say, I met Duster, Dan Duster, and I've interviewed him several times on my show. And that's the mm-hmm. first time I met him in person was at, in Abbeville at the marker ceremony and at the church with the family members. They had a big family reunion, 
And mm-hmm. I was just so happy that to be in the church where the gentleman who was victim who was a victim of the lynching when when I when I saw the marker I was just like, Wow, this is a terrible trip. And what did his family say, Leslie? What did his family say? Because again but when, when mm-hmm. let me just say uh, we went to the marker first and then we went to the church and then I started to learn about this man as a person and not a lynching victim. And then I got to learn of all the things that he had done in the community and and he you know, and then I said, Well, this is a more balanced story then I went back to the marker, took pictures of the marker, and the other side talked about him, the man, and the reason why they, they you know, um, lynched him. So if we know so about Ida what B. you Wells, did I was that you should mention her name. You should mention Ida B. Wells' name on each marker, or I mean, uh, but you Paul can't Robinson. mention Ida because sometimes Ida B. Step into the world of power, loyalty. And luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.